This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to updates on the latest and on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is a bi-weekly podcast here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, and Eric Smith. We are recording on Thursday, December 7th, 2017. Hey, Eric. Hello. How's it going? Not bad, not bad. I'm super excited about today's episode and to... Uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, talk about the gifts that are books. Yes, <laughs> to put it nicely. But <laughs> yeah. not gift books. But not gift yes. books. Like, we should clarify. Gifts yes, that gift are books. books. Yeah. There's, there's what are you reading one, right now? Uh, well, I have two I'm going to talk about. Um, so so right now I'm reading The Midnights by Sarah Nicole uh, Smetana. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last names, and I apologize. Um, so this one doesn't come out till March with Harper Teen. I'm reading a lot of ARCs right now because it's it's December. I'm trying to find the books that I want to be, you know, screaming about all year long. Um <laughs> So it's this YA novel about a teen musician who's, like, living in the shadow of her rock star father. And uh, now that she's finally ready to kind of come out into her own and, and play her own music, uh, he dies. Uh, and everything in his fa- her family just sort of falls apart. Um, it reminds me a lot of reading Janet McNally's debut, uh, The Girls in the Moon, which came out uh, last year. Um, it's really lyrical and lovely, and it's about the unique way music and family can blend together in... Well, you know, in musical families. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Um, I haven't seen a ton of buzz about it, so I, I want to, you know, talk about it to, to get it out there. It's uh, it's really, really lovely. Um, I really like the cover of that one, too. I haven't haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I've got it sitting on my shelf. It's got a really lovely cover oh, of a yeah. girl um, with sunglasses on. and mm-hmm. um, There's like a moon know, reflected a... in the sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a super appealing cover. Yeah, I, I hope a lot of people get into it. Um, and then the other one I'm reading, uh, the other book is a paperback arc. This one is an e-galley, uh, The Summer of Jordi Perez and the Best Burger in Los Angeles by Amy Spaulding. Um, I cannot that... wait to read it. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. Um, so yeah, I'm reading this one as a digital uh, galley. Um, and I like to sort of go back and forth depending on how I'm feeling. Is that a conversation for later? Reading ebooks versus print has <laughs> has anyone been brave enough to talk about this before? So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So so first, um, you know, uh, this book comes out in uh, 2018. It has the best title of any book coming out in 2018. I think um, it's about a gay teenager with a fashion blog who gets an internship at a popular local boutique uh, and falls for her coworker uh, named Jordy. Uh, it's this really fun novel of love and friendship, and like I've, I've talked about this before in in blogs on Book Riot and everywhere else. But I really think Amy Spaulding is like the funniest YA contemporary writer <laughs> out there. Um, I agree. I would one hundred percent agree with you. Like, oh my goodness! Like, and the book is just it's just full of all these uh, just these belly laugh moments alongside lots of uh, lots of swoons. Um, and yeah, I hope people don't sleep on this one. It. Uh, oh shoot! When does it come out? 
<laughs> it comes out next year. I think, I think year. it's April. April? Okay. So spring <laughs> next year. Uh, keep an eye out for it because I am, I am just loving it. Um, that one, I just got an, a digital galley of that one and I can't wait to read it. And the uh, cover the on that one. What's that? The cover on that one? Oh my goodness. The the rainbow letters and, and the girl with a hamburger. Like, ugh, it's great. Yeah. The, um, the thing that caught my attention about that book when I first read about it, it must have been when the book sold. It's about a fat girl, too. Like, she's not just this, like, queer girl with a fashion blog who gets a internship at a local boutique and falls mm-hmm. in love. Like, she's a fat girl, and this is, like, a big part of her story. And um, I just, ah, uh, there aren't enough books that sort of show that experience in a way that's not, like, I hate myself, I hate my body, I hate, you know, like what this industry does, but rather, mm-hmm. like, embraces who they are at the moment and still allows them to have these sorts of passions that you just don't see such a positive spin on um, anywhere. So, um, yeah, I can't wait for that one. And what about you? Um, what's in your uh, What's in your queue? So I'm about halfway through The Art of Starving by Sam J. Miller. It's a mm. debut that came out this year, and it's set up a little bit like The Art of War, about a gay boy named Matt who is struggling with an eating disorder, which, because of how much that eating disorder is impacting him, it's sort of leading him to believe he has superpowers. Oh. Um, so, I've read a number of reviews that have talked about, like, does he really have superpowers? Is this just all in his mind? And for me, as I'm reading it, like, I guess as somebody who's done a lot of thinking and reading and, and ex- has had experience with mental illness like to me it's very clear that this is like his body is starving and now his mind is like really just messed up and um you know it it's it gives you a look at sort of the external factors that could cause somebody to want to restrict their eating but far more than that it's about what happens on the inside and why these sorts of disorders continue like he understands that it's not healthy what he's doing, but at the same time, like, his mind is lying to him about everything going on, and in addition to that, he's got the issue of, like, he thinks he has superpowers, so, mm-hmm. you know, all this going on is noise in his head, and how does he sort of distinguish, like, what's real versus what his mind is saying to him versus, like, what his real powers and strengths are versus, like, the ones he thinks he has. Um, so it's... Obviously, for anybody who struggles with eating disorders or is easily triggered, not one to pick up lightly, um, but really compelling so far. Wow, that sounds amazing. I didn't know that it was set up like The Art of War. That's really that's really interesting. Um, there's another YA novel um, by Paula Stokes. What is it? The Art of Laney, I think. That's oh, like yeah. set up like The Art of War, too. That's, uh, I love books that do that. <laughs> yeah, I like that sort of clever take on, you know... A cl- I guess a classic is the best way to put it, but mm-hmm. um, made in like a teen-friendly, accessible sort <laughs> of way. Um, there's a lot in this particular book about the Dharma Bombs, ja- mm-hmm. the Jack Kerouac book. Oh, and wow. I, I can't remember now what other YA book has that sort of as a, as a big like backdrop piece. And um, so reading it in this one, I'm just thinking about the times I've seen that book sort of pop up as a, not necessarily a guide, for the mm-hmm. teens, but like as a as a book that comes up that influences them in some capacity. Um, and this one, it has to do with his father and this book meaning a lot to his father that has been absent in his life. So this is sort of his way to be connected to 
who he thinks his father is. Oh, man, I'm going to check that out. I think I have that on my bookshelf and just haven't quite gotten into it yet. But, uh, yeah, that might have to change over the, uh, over the winter break. <laughs> Should we um, jump into our first sponsor and then, like, launch into what we want to talk about today? Yeah, so let's do it. All right, so our first sponsor is The Language of Thorns by Lee Bardugo. From the number one New York Times bestselling author and fantasy powerhouse Lee Bardugo comes a new set of adventures in her beloved Grishaverse. Whether you already know and love the Grishaverse or you're exploring it for the first time, this deliciously atmospheric collection of short stories will have you hooked in Bardugo's compelling twists and turns. With gorgeous artwork on every page and a lush cover, The Language of Thorns makes the perfect gift for any book nerd or fantasy fan. Any lover of fairy tales, folklore, and myths will be blown away by this fully realized world of dangerous magic. It's as though you've lived Bardugo's Ravka and pulled a collection of stories off the shelf to read. Some of the descriptions in that ad just, like, are the best. Deliciously yeah. atmospheric collection. I love that. Yes, lush cover. Yes, please. Dangerous magic. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a copy of this at home, and it is, oh my goodness, it is a gorgeous book. Like, it's... I think we talked about it a little last time when we were talking about those books that are um, books that that feel like like objects you want to have, and that's mm-hmm. definitely one of those. That's definitely one of those those sort of books where it's really beautiful, and you want to uh, you want to have it on your shelf there. I, I still haven't read this series, and someday I will. <laughs> yes. So, the first thing we want to talk about, we'll keep fairly short, but we wanted to to touch on it, um, and it's that for those of you who who don't know. Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, which came out this year and has been a New York Times bestseller and award-winning novel about the Black Lives Matter movement, has been um, pulled from shelves off of the Katy, Texas school district. And so this has popped up in a few articles, and it sort of started with not much information. I think Angie tweeted a little bit about it, but didn't have a whole lot to say, which is is normal. Um, Authors don't always know what's going on and they don't always have all the information so a few days later more articles came with more stories about the real (laughs) real like push behind what was going on and uh, one of those pieces which I'll link to in the show notes actually has the video from the school board meeting where this all went down so I went ahead and dedicated 25 minutes to watching a school board meeting for a school that I know very little about in uh, suburban Houston, Texas, to sort of see what I could say about it. And um, so my very first impression was, you know, you, you get to see in these videos, like, who's sitting in the audience, right? And so you're playing a game of who is it? Who, who's going to complain? Mm-hmm. Imagine my shock when it was a middle-aged white man <gasps> who went up to the podium. I know, I know. And he wanted you to know that he could only read 13 pages of the book before he was just appalled by the language, by the discussion of sex, by the discussion of drugs. Like, this was appalling to him um, in 13 pages. As he's reading it and watching the video, and also in that room is a black woman and her son, and they're sitting in the back. And as soon as he's done talking, and, and he goes on and on about, like, how inappropriate this book is, how offensive it is, how something needs to be done. Um, The grandmother who's with this mother and this son comes up to the podium and talks about 
Uh, I'm sorry, she wasn't the grandmother of the son. She was another black woman who was sitting with them. Um, but she talked about how her child had been a victim of abuse at the school. And as, as she's talking and sharing this story, you just see this man so pleased with himself on his cell phone, like texting away. And I don't know what was more infuriating, listening to this guy be really, you know, I read 13 pages, I know what's best for our children, or acting like a child when this woman who clearly, like, has a big issue that the school has has to address, he's just on his phone, like, so happy that he did it, you know, and it's one of those things you're watching, you're just getting more and more infuriated. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit, not just about that, like, that is a big deal, and and I do encourage anybody who wants to feel, like, super fired up about it to watch the video. Um, he starts at, like, minute 12 or 13, somewhere in there. So if you don't want to sit through the whole 25 minutes of it. But, um, so, I'm a former librarian. So some of my experiences is in dealing with complaints about books. Um, my first year working at a library, I had a parent complain about a book that she checked out on audio for her sixth grade daughter and she found it super inappropriate and like left this long note when she returned the audiobook. And it was about how inappropriate it was and how this book should not be in an area meant for, you know, sixth graders, whatever, whatever. And I didn't do anything about it because our teen section was for sixth through twelfth graders. So in my mind, you know, she's the parent, not me. And so the issue falls on her. Which, in a public library, that's the case. Like, you are there to serve the public, which means there will be things in there that are going to upset parents, but it's the parent's job to parent. In high school, well, any school library, it's a little bit different. So, school libraries tend to work in what's called um, in local parentis. So, they can serve sort of in the place of parents. Um, meaning, if they get, I guess, the way, best way to put it is, in lieu of a parent um, making all the decisions, they can sort of make decisions thinking in terms of the parents. So book complaints can happen a little bit more often in school libraries because there's a little bit more restriction placed on the, the librarian to have a collection that is representative and serves the curriculum of the school, but it doesn't necessarily need to fit the entire community. And it sometimes means that they, too, have to be a little bit more conservative in their choices just to not ruffle any parental feathers. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a different position to be in. Um, and I think that also gives parents a little bit more power in terms of being able to bring up these issues. But stepping away from that, part of what makes this removal of a book so infuriating is none of the due process happened. It was just pulled off shelves. Um, so as much as there's less room for school librarians to sort of have a collection that they feel would best serve all of their students, they have policies for when a complaint is made and challenges have to go through these policies. And it tends to be a number of meetings, you know, a number of decisions. But in this case, that did not happen. The book was immediately moved from shelves, meaning that readers, I believe it's district-wide, cannot get access to the book. So junior highs, high schools, 
it's not there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is know, fascinating just, to me, though, on your side of things, like talking about the school libraries versus the public libraries and, and the policies mm-hmm. there. Like, I never really, I don't know, I never really thought about them being different. Like, I feel like, yeah, obviously, it's it's an obvious fact that a school library and a public library is different. But I don't know, it's not something that's really top of mind when I'm when I'm thinking about this sort of thing. Right. And I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be, you know, if you aren't working in that capacity, it seems like all libraries would sort of operate in the same way. But school libraries are a little bit more challenging to work in because there are a lot more, there are a lot more places of oversight for what they mm-hmm. do, which isn't to say that there's, you know, free reign in public libraries. It's just, there's fewer people that they have to answer for. And it's a little bit easier to justify a purchase because, you're serving a community, which is going to look different than serving a school community, in in theory. Um, yeah. But in this particular case, it's just like, I keep thinking about this video in this, you know, middle-aged white man who so proudly read 13 pages of this book, talking about how inappropriate it is when, you know, there's this black teenage boy, and he must have been 12 or 13, I don't know. Um, but he was, you know, right at that age that that book is perfect for. And I'm, I'm just like, how does he know better than what this kid has actually lived and experienced? I can't even, you know, like, uh, it was so frustrating to watch. And it's so frustrating knowing that he got away with it without any sort of like oversight with no pushback. Like it just happened. And uh, as someone who really believes that those books should be available for kids in some way, like. I don't know. It just, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. Because were he not, you know, a middle-aged white man, would it have been the same? I don't know. I have a feeling no. <laughs> um, the other thing I was going to say with this is, as of now, and I, I talked to Angie briefly about it, there hasn't been, like, an organi- organized drive to get books to the kids. Um, there's been a lot of talk on social media about how to get the book in the hands of the kids, Nothing formal has yet been set up, and from what I've heard, they tried to reach out to the like, local teen librarian and couldn't work something out, which again makes some sense because sometimes when you work in a you know public library district, you don't want to ruffle too many feathers either because you, mm-hmm. your job could be on the line, um, yeah. depending how you know the politics of the area are, or um, you know any number of things. So. If anybody out there is listening and is considering putting something together, I'd love to hear more and I'd love to talk about it. Um, I did hop on to Google Maps just to sort of see what was around the middle school. And I can't remember what the name of the middle school is now, but I think it's in the article that I'll link. But there's a fire station right across the street from the, the middle school where this all sort of took place, where the incident sort of um, grew from. And I wonder if there'd be some way to work with the fire department. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, flood them with books that the kids can walk across the street and pick up and have. And um, so I'm I'm always really fascinated by uh, how sales are impacted by books when they get banned. Um, Cause like, I feel like when someone would tell me as a kid, like you can't have that or you can't read that. uh, Well, no, now I want to read that. Like, I wonder how many more kids are buying the book and picking up the book as a result of this sort of thing happening? I would hope that it would go up, but I also have this real fear that part of the challenge is when they can't get it at the um, 
school that they're at, they just won't be able to get it. If they're not near a library that has it, if they're, you know, putting a request in, say, to the local public library, they could be on a holds list for a year, you know? Ah, um, yes. They don't necessarily have money to run to the bookstore and get it. Mm-hmm. Kids who are under, you know, 16, whatever, don't have a credit card, so they can't buy it online. You know, there's a lot of, like, things I think about when a book is taken from a school and just really how it limits the access to that book. Like, for us as adults, we can think of ways around it because we have a lot more flexibility. Um, but I think about that, like, 12-year-old who really needs that book and yet, like, literally won't have access to it. Yeah, that's true. Huh? I didn't think of that. Yeah. So... We hope that if you're listening and are enraged, <laughs> like we are, um, you know, see if there's something that could be done and, and getting those books to those kids. Um, you know, it takes a lot of work to make it happen, but it's it's always worth it knowing that kids who need the book or would be really moved by that book can have it um, in a way that they can't get it at school, which every time I say that just blows my mind that they can't get it at school. <laughs> So on that happy <laughs> note, <laughs> um, do you want to segue into the next topic? Yeah, so we want to talk a little bit about uh, YA anthologies. Um, Kelly and I are both lucky enough to have uh, edited and curated our own, um, and also just happen to be uh, really big fans of them. We thought it might be fun to talk about uh, what makes them so interesting, why are they successful, um, you know, how do you go about choosing what anthologies to read. Uh, I feel like they're kind of having a I don't know like a bigger moment right now they were popular a few years back they kind of went quiet and now we're seeing this sudden boom in them again and I am a fan same yeah <laughs> yeah so, so what was uh go ahead <laughs> well I was gonna say like what is um you know what, what do you like the most uh about these sort of YA anthologies <laughs> like what you like most right yeah. um for me, I think the big, like, appeal is that you sort of get to pick and choose your reading experience. So with most anthologies, and I'll talk about a couple that are different, most of them you could sort of pick up and put down and start wherever you want to and skip things that you don't particular, particularly connect with. Um, and there's something just really freeing that allows you to sort of have a creative reading experience in a way that a novel or even a narrative nonfiction book doesn't quite allow. What about you? Um, I'm making a note to myself right now in our little spreadsheet about this, but uh, <laughs> one thing I really like about them that I, I feel like maybe doesn't get talked enough about when it comes to why anthologies is using them as a, as teaching materials. Mm -hmm. um, like I know in the last episode we talked about uh, creative formats and anthologies, how they're, you know, they do different things with storytelling and how Sean David Hutchinson's, um, what is the one that's the Canterbury Tales? Is it the Feral Youth? Feral Youth, yeah. Book? Yeah, like Feral Youth uh, retells the Canterbury Tales. Um, you know, books like that are so great in classrooms uh, mm -hmm. when you're trying desperately to, you know, give teenagers short stories that, you know, they'll be able to, I don't know, empathize with and relate to in a way that maybe picking up, you know, I don't know, Nathaniel Hawthorne doesn't necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't necessarily uh, you know, work. So you have these... Uh, anthologies with short stories where a kid could potentially see themselves in the character in a way that you might not be able to with classic books. Um, so I love seeing them in classrooms. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I um, the first library I ever worked at, there was a um, 
teacher who used to do short story units, and Mm -hmm. one of my tasks would be to pull all the YA anthologies out and send them over, which I loved. Like, I loved thinking about these kids finding these short stories by authors who they may know or authors that they may not have read yet, and they connect with the story and then are suddenly like, Mom, I need to go to the library to get a book by you know, uh, Libba Bray or Holly Black, because they wrote this story in this anthology I read in my classroom that I loved. And I know that they have a bunch more books that seem like they would be the sort of things I like to read. Yeah. And that's the other thing, you know, like <laughs> anthologies almost that they're almost like a marketing tool for an author mm-hmm. to be in, um, you know, kids, get these books, they read a bunch of stories, they find an author that they suddenly become smitten with. Uh, and then they're reading all those other books. Um, you know, anthologies tend to be this, you know, speaking of someone that worked on one, these these passion projects that mm-hmm. might not necessarily generate a lot of money for the contributors or the person that put it together. Um, you know, in most cases, definitely don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's... <laughs> but it's but it's that marketing hook, you know? It's that uh, here's a book that's going to get all these authors in front of a single person all at once um, and helps with that thing that publishers complain about all the time, that, that discoverability factor. Uh, here's a book that's doing a ton of work for you for a ton of authors all at the same time. I had an experience reading an anthology, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, um, Jessica Spotswood's um, I know I just wrote the title down, and now I can't remember the... Uh, Tyr- Tyranny of Petticoats. So it's a historical fiction about women in American history. And I remember reading it, and that was the first time I've ever read a Beth Revis, Revis mm-hmm. story. Um, her books just, like, I have never sounded like something that I would be into. But I read her short story, and I believe it was on... Oh, I can't remember who it was on now, but it was set in the West, um, you know, during the Westward expansion. And I read it and I loved it. And I was like, you know what? I've never read her before. And now I want to make sure that I read her stuff. Um, She's well known. She's done. She's done well. But like her, her books had just never been like in my pile. And then after reading that short story, I was like, all right, got to fix that. Um, You know, and that's one of those things, too, is it's like you get to see these authors who are trying new storytelling techniques or trying totally different genres or voices and you just get to see what they can do with writing and that is sort of a way to sell their other books if you haven't been sold on them before well speaking of selling other books with anthologies so there's the um that new anthology just came out the three sides of a heart by natalie Mm -hmm. c parker um there's a short story in there that comes from dread nation by justina ireland that comes out you know, later this year and is later next year and is like, I don't know, it should be everyone's most anticipated book <laughs> of next year. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a short story in there about zombies during the Civil War. And it's, uh, yeah, it, you know, led to this awesome duology that, oh my God, I cannot wait to read it. <laughs> um, so one of the things I have heard about anthologies that some people find challenging is it's hard to sort of remember what the stories are or remember which stories they really liked by the time you get to the end because you've read, you know, you could have read 15 or 20 stories. And by the time you're at number 18 or 19, you're like, what went on in number three or four? But one of the ways that I found to sort of make this easier is to write down like a really quick sentence or two summary of each story as you get through them. And I'm a person who I write in my books. Um, and 
shocker. Like, I'm okay with destroying books. It doesn't, like, they aren't precious to me. <gasps> but, um, I know. <laughs> um, but for people who do not feel the same way that I do, you know, just grabbing a notebook or a post-it note, and when you finish a story, just making a couple quick notes, you know, funny, or didn't work for me, or um, would be great for readers who like books by so-and-so. Um, and then by the end, you sort of have this nice collection of hits and misses throughout the book. And and if you're lucky, you have a book where everything's a hit. But I think realistically, and I speak as somebody who's edited an anthology, and I'm sure you could say this too, you know your reader's probably not going to love everything. And that's yeah. sort of the beauty of an anthology, is knowing that they're going to try some new things and they may not like it, but they've tried some new things. Yes. Are there any um, I don't know? Are there any anthologies coming out soon that you're you're psyched about? Um, like I know I am just oh my god! I need an early copy of A Thousand Beginnings and Endings. Um, oh yeah! It's edited by Ellen O and Elsie Chapman, and it features just scores of awesome authors reimagining folklore mythology of East and South Asia. Um, yes. Book Riot's own Preeti Chibers in it, and I'm I can't wait to read her her YA debut in there. Yeah, that's one I'm really looking forward to as well. Yeah, and City Pond I, is in it too, I think. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I You mentioned Three Sides of a Heart. I can't wait to read that one. Um, it's about, it, it's a whole collection of short stories about love triangles. And I love the whole premise because it, it, it kind of came out of this conversation that happens in the YA community about a hatred for love triangles. <laughs> and... I love them. <laughs> I do. You know, I'm, I'm hit and miss on them. Um, it depends how well they're done. So I'm excited mm. to read a whole book about them and sort of see if it changes my mind or sort of solidifies this. If they're done well, they're done well. And if they're not well, then they're just not. Um, <laughs> and I'm also really looking forward to the um, oh, Radical Element by Jessica Spotswood. It's the second anthology, anthology she has done, which is historical fiction of girls through history oh what about goodness. you How what are you, you looking forward to uh meet cute uh that comes out uh next month i think and it's a it's it's like three sides of a heart where it's uh about a certain kind of relationship and it's about meet cutes people uh meeting one another uh becoming friends falling in love um there's a ton of great authors in it i don't know who the, who it is that collected the anthology. It, it might just be put together by the publisher. I, I could mm-hmm. be mistaken. Um, but yeah, uh, Nicole Yoon, there, there's tons of great people in there. Danielle Clayton. Um, yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. And the cover is beautiful. For listeners who want a couple other ideas of what to pick up, do you have any suggestions for them? Like as good starter anthologies, maybe? Hmm. I really liked, uh, it's, it's an older one, but uh, Geektastic that uh, mm-hmm. Holly Black put together. Um, there's a lot of awesome authors in it, like Cory Doctorow, and there's illustrations by... Um, oh, no, I'm forgetting his name. He wrote Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Uh, uh, well, uh, I've got it sitting right here. Um, Brian gonna, Lee O'Malley. Yeah, Brian Lee O'Malley. I almost had... Well, yeah, I have to turn in my geek card now. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. A lot of nerdy stories in there about Comic-Con and... and things like that it's just delightful um yeah that that's that that one might be a really great starter Mm -hmm. i think readers who want a good starter too should try 
April Genevieve Chuchulki Slasher Girls and Monster Boys, which is oh. sort of a horror anthology. I say sort of because not all of them are the sort of horror that you would expect when you hear horror. Um, but I think it's good because it sort of gives you an idea of just how wide and varied the concept of horror is. Um, most of the stories in that one I loved. I can't even like remember the ones that maybe didn't stick with me as much, which I think is also a good sign of an anthology that there's not one sticking out that I, I'm thinking to myself, man, I hated that story or, you know, like, why was that in there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I was going to add is there was this series. I haven't read them, but I always saw them and wondered how they were. Um, they were called the From Hell series. Oh, so yes. it was like Vacations from Hell. Um, Prom from Hell. Yeah. Um, and I just learned Libba Bray edited the Vacations from Hell one. Like, I, I guess I never put two and two together on that one. So now I'm itching to go back and <laughs> read some of those old ones and just see how many authors are authors who um, were having really big careers at the moment and authors who have sort of exploded since. Um, you know, I always find it fascinating to read those earlier works as well as those works that are like mid-career and see mm-hmm. where they've gone from then. So I think those came out in like 2000. Eight and nine, so they've almost ten years old. Wow. Well, that also makes me think of an episode. We should do one on uh, backlist titles of, you know, authors who are titans now. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. Do you want to hop into our next sponsor? Yes, let's talk about our next sponsor, one you haven't heard before, <laughs> The Language of Thorns by Lee Bardugo. Uh, from the number one New York Times bestselling author and fantasy powerhouse Lee Bardugo comes a new set of adventures in her beloved Grishaverse. Whether you already know and love the Grishaverse or you're exploring it for the first time, this deliciously atmospheric collection of short stories will have you hooked on Bardugo's compelling twists and turns. With gorgeous artwork on every page and a lush cover, The Language of Thorns makes the perfect gift for any book nerd or or fantasy fan. Any lover of fairy tales, folklore, and myth will be blown away by this fully realized world of dangerous magic. It's as though you lived in Bardugo's Ravka and pulled a collection of stories off the shelf to read. So yeah, like Dear I said listener. earlier, I love these books. <laughs> Dear listener, you're not hearing things. We have the same sponsor twice. So we were like, should we say anything about it? Should we just see if they guess? But I can imagine someone going, they messed that up. No, we didn't. We know what we're doing <laughs> for once. <laughs> so so you came up with this last topic you, that you wanted to talk about today. And so I'm going to go ahead and let you sort of lead the discussion on this one. Yeah. So with the holidays approaching, uh, how do you find the right YA book for the right person? Uh, gifting YA books. How do you make it about them uh, and not so much about what it is uh, you like, uh, which can be tricky you know you're in the bookstore you're looking for something for a friend uh maybe you just want to introduce them to something you already love uh but that might not necessarily be the uh the gift they're looking for um i'm really close to making another sad man book <laughs> reference here like in high fidelity oh nope i'm, I'm gonna do it uh so in High Fidelity, he uh, decides he finally knows how to make a mixtape for the person he cares about um, when he fills it with stuff that she likes, as opposed to the stuff that he likes. Uh, it's a great moment in the movie where John Cusack does this. Um, and that's really how I think you should go about buying a YA book for someone around the holidays. Um, make it less about you uh, and more about more about them. Um, how do you do this, Kelly? I, I, I think you have some good ideas. So one of the 
first, well, I don't want to say first, but one of the most important skills that I learned in library school, which makes it sound like I learned, you know, like, I'm so learned I went to library school, but um, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, one of the things I learned that I really took away was that you have to think about books in sort of a different way. It's not about me or what I like when it comes to recommending or even talking about books. Um, I might find a book to be terrible or poorly written or you know, whatever, but I have to sort of put that aside when it comes to what somebody else might like or enjoy. So, like, my job and responsibility is to listen to what they're saying or what they enjoy and recommend based on that versus my own experiences or ideas. So instead of not suggesting a book or buying a book for somebody because I haven't liked it, I instead would give it to them and say, this, you know, I got this for you because of X and Y and Z, which I know you like, or, um, you know, like this book did something that I think you'll really appreciate in it. Um, and the other thing is, and, and this is more from a library side than a, a book buying side, but it fits too, um, is giving people options. So if you can send people away with more than one book. <laughs> it's always a good thing because then then they sort of have a choice in it, you know, if they pick something up and start reading it and they're like 10 pages in, 20 pages in, and they're like, eh. It's always nice that there's another book at the ready that they can try and um, maybe that one will work a little bit better. That's true. That's true. Um, I also think it's a good idea to maybe think about the, the amount of time the person has on their hands. Um I mean, we were just talking about The Hate You Give uh, earlier in this episode, and that's a really big book. Um, mm. I love that book. I would love to give it to, uh, <laughs> you know, all of my friends and make them read it. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I think about how a lot of my friends, um, some of them aren't book people. Um, miraculously, we are still friends. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in the case of them, you know, friends that maybe read, you know, one book a year, two books a year, uh, maybe a really big book isn't quite right for them. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe look after, uh, you know, YA and verse titles um, or shorter YA contemporaries uh, you know books that spring to mind are you know jason reynolds latest a long way down you know i saw him recently tweeting about how uh he was saying something along the lines of how you could read his book in 90 minutes uh <laughs> which is kind of true so that, yeah. that might be mm -hmm. <laughs> that might be a great title to give uh to a friend that necessarily doesn't have the amount of time uh they might like to read or don't read all that often um or you know nina lacour's we are okay uh which is just you know a really short but really really beautiful book um and i think i said it in the previous episode how i want to just sort of have it on display everywhere because it's yep. so pretty <laughs> um yeah so maybe maybe look after those sort of things when you're when you're considering the amount of time i also like to think about if I know their reading interests and sort of go from there. A lot of times you don't, though. So you mm. sort of need to start with what you do know. Do you know what they like to watch on TV? What kind of movies that they like? Or sometimes I find it even more interesting to think about the things they don't like because then I know, like, how to eliminate a huge swath of potential mm. recommendations. Um, and if you're picking out for somebody who maybe, like, is new to YA, it's always helpful to sort of start with the bestseller list. Now that we're seeing the bestseller list be a little bit more representative of, you know, the world around us, um, it's not going to hurt to start at the top and and look through and say, okay, maybe they haven't read The Hate You Give. That might be a really good, good book to pass along to them because it's done really well. It's generated so much conversation. It's having this big cultural moment and it's going to continue to have a big cultural moment. 
Um, and as the movie comes out, I think it's next year sometime, it's going to explode even more. So yeah. getting them the book now, they'll be grateful for it, even if they don't read it immediately. And then you can sort of go from there. Um, if you have a friend who's read it and you're thinking, okay, they, they really liked it and they like books that sort of have a social justice theme to them, then you think of other books that maybe they haven't seen so much about and go that route. So maybe they would want Dear Martin by Nick Stone, which not the same, but covers some similar territory and would appeal to people who like The Hate You Give and might not be a book that they necessarily know about. Um, so, it's interesting so it's you thinking, mentioned... Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, it's interesting you mentioned you, know, you were talking about like books that are similar. Hey, you gave you talked about Dear Martin and we're talking about these these books that we gift. Um, do you ever pre-order books as gifts? Because I've just started thinking about Tyler Johnson was here. It comes out next mm-hmm. year, which is getting lots of, you know, compar- comparisons to The Hate You Give and Dear Martin. Uh, but, you know, doesn't come out for a while. Um, do you ever do that? Pre-order a book as a gift? I don't think I ever have. And I'm I wondering if it's a good it. idea. I have done it once or twice, um, and it's always been for somebody that I kind of know their reading taste or they've asked me to recommend books to them, mm-hmm. and so I kind of can anticipate it's something that they would be interested in reading. Whether or not they like it doesn't matter to me, but rather it falls into their, like, this is similar to something they've read before and enjoyed or, or thought was worth their time, um, but I haven't done it a whole lot, and I wonder, yeah, I wonder about that. It's sort of tricky in terms of if the book doesn't come out until the spring (laughs) being like, sorry, you're not getting a holiday gift, but it'll come in March. Um, you know, if, if you've got somebody who's game with that, like then I think that's a great idea because surprise gift in March, you know, (laughs) um, there's something fun about that too. Yeah. One of the, this is sort of related to gifting, but I had a friend who suggested once that at the end of the year, you should go and pre-order yourself a new book for, you know, whatever, each month, every other month in the new year. And that way you're always surprised when you get the mail and that pre-order shows up. Ooh, it's like, that is a brilliant idea. idea. You know, and it's sort of fun because you can then like really build your wish list and then be delighted when it shows up because you already took care of it. You know, that's like a, a subscription box that you curate yourself yes. without any, without any tchotchkes inside. I, I like that. I might do that when we finish the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, you could do something like that, too, you know. Um, you've got somebody that you want to get a couple of gifts for. You could say, here's one now. There's something coming for you in April or May. And then also something coming for you in July, you know. Um, depends how much you like the person and want to spend on them, of course. But, um, you know, there's something about spreading the book love all year long. <laughs> Man, now I'm, th- I'm thinking about all the books I want to pre-order now. What, what have you done? <laughs> Me? So far? I haven't done it yet. Um, oh, no, I, I meant more as, what have you done, like, to me? Now, oh, now to I'm gonna, you. <laughs> I'm going to go pre-order all these books. <laughs> I have offered you a gift is what I have done. <laughs> um, and sort of, too, speaking about gifting, the other thing you can do that I found helpful is um, if there's a movie they've become obsessed with, whatever it is, get them a book that's similar to the movie or a book based on the movie. So if they are obsessed with Star Wars, buy them a Star Wars YA novel or two. Um, if they're obsessed with the movie Lady Bird, like I currently am, think about what it is in that movie that was so appealing to them. Um, you know, in the case of that movie, if it's the complex mother-daughter relationship, 
You can find that in so many great YA contemporary books. One I thought of immediately was The Reese Malcolm List by Amy Spaulding, who we were talking about earlier. And every time I think about that movie, I think about that book. I'm like, man, they make such a great pairing. Like, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And don't let your, uh, you know, personal politics of book cover versus movie cover, you know, get in the way of, of treating your friend. Um, it's okay. It's okay to give your friend the <laughs> the copy of the duff that has the movie cover on it because mm-hmm. it's still the same book inside. And you could also then gift them the movie. Oh, you that's know. fun. Yeah. I mean, you could, you know, you can make it a whole experience, get them the movie and the book and say, we'll have a, you know, wine night some night if they're over 21. Um, <laughs> like, as I'm saying that, I'm like, oh, wait, this is about YA books. But if they're over 21, you can do something like, you know, wine night and you watch the movie together and then you talk about the book. Like, and it's a great way to sort of have a little tiny book club that's personal and intimate and also a gift. <laughs> um, oh, and my last piece of advice, this is a very important one. Um, for gifting books. So listen carefully, okay? Mm. Never give someone a James Patterson young adult book. <laughs> but do, but do send them a link to all of James Patterson's book trailers. Um, those, <laughs> those videos are a gift that keeps giving. I think we need to stop the show right here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's no more that needs to be said about this topic. <laughs> we have now devolved into laughing. But on that note, thank you for tuning in this week. Please leave feedback about our show on Apple Podcasts if you love it. And let others find us through your love for us. Did that make sense? It makes sense now. Thanks again to today's sponsors, The Language of Thorns and The Language of Thorns, for helping make the show possible. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, on Twitter and on Instagram as Veronica Kelly Mars. And you can follow Eric Smith on Twitter and Instagram as Eric Smith Rocks. We'll talk to you again in two weeks, also known as we'll see you in the new year. Bye.